Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I want to ask you, do you think you've got the right stuff? Do you have the skills it takes to succeed as a CISO? And if your answer is yes, how do you know? And then what happens if you get blindsided by something you could have anticipated? See, I've asked a number of sources for recommendations and insight onto what it would take to be successful. And I also have a surprise guest a little bit later on that I'm sure you heard of. So make sure you stick around and see what we've got to say here. But before we get going, let me share with you a message from our sponsor. Meet Nucleus, the only risk-based vulnerability management platform purpose-built for the world's most complex enterprises. Nucleus takes the mountain of vulnerability data that's produced by your security stack and unifies it into one clean dashboard that helps you make sense of your assets and vulnerabilities. With Nucleus, users get a normalized and deduplicated list of vulnerabilities across network devices, clouds, applications, and more. And next, they layer in risk and vulnerability intelligence from sources like Mandiant to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter most. Ready to see how Nucleus can help improve your vulnerability management program? Head to NucleusSec.com today. Welcome back to the show. Now, as CISOs or security leaders, whatever role happens to be, for the most part, when we applied for a job or we got promoted into it, there was a job description. And that job description tends to enumerate experience sets. It doesn't enumerate skill sets. And these are different things. That is to say, it's very difficult to recruit somebody by saying, do you have excellent problem-solving skills? Are you able to go ahead and manage? Now, they'll ask you for, do you have a degree? Do you have the certification? Do you have these many years of experience? And that's typically what gets you in the door. What we want to make sure, though, is that as a cybersecurity professional, it's aspiring to or serving in a leadership role, that you understand, of course, there's a lot more than technical expertise involved in being successful. As we said throughout a number of our shows, as you progress through your career, you're going to master technical and management, leadership, and political skills. And these are orthogonal, meaning that expertise in one doesn't necessarily guarantee you success in another. And that's sometimes how you end up topping out. Now, the nature of the Peter principle, people get promoted to their own level of incompetence. Well, sometimes you might find yourself in a situation where the capabilities that got you into that situation are not the same ones that you need to have to get you out. And so my goal today is to get you thinking of where you might find gaps in your own set of personal skills, and then take some action to fill them in before you actually need them. There's plenty of reference materials out there that talk about CISO success, and I'm not going to talk about really any of them. What I've done is I've looked at a number of references and have come up with a few outside-the-box sets worth considering. So bear with me a little bit. I think you'll find this is going to be interesting. If you did a Google search for, quote, top business skills, and I'm not sure how they did the software engine optimization, your first hit is going to be from the government of Western Australia down in Perth. And they offer about essentially business skills, essential business skills. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. And they say, okay, fine. But yeah, this is for small business founders and the like and entrepreneurs. But I submit that it's going to apply to you as a CISO as well. Now, I've been involved in small business for most of my career. I started up another number of companies, and I'm used to that. However, what I find out is that when I've worked in larger organizations, some of the same types of expertise 
is valuable there as well. And these are enumerated here from this Western Australia government site, things such as financial management, marketing, sales, customer service, communication and negotiation, leadership, project management and planning, delegation, time management, problem solving and networking. All of those things, Alice submit, are important for us as a CISO or a security leader to master. So let me dive into them a little bit. And I want you to start thinking about, as I talk about these things, do you feel comfortable being able to execute at or above a competency level to each one of these things? Now, there's some things I admit I am not going to be competent to. I can't walk out onto a football field and go out and play in the NFL. Just not going to happen. Love the game of football. Love to watch it. Love to root for my team but I'm not going to be a player. And I understand that I've got a weakness and a limitation there. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but as Clint Eastwood would say, man's got to know his limitations. So the first thing I want to take a look at is financial management. And do you have what you would consider to be sound financial management skills? Well, if you think about it, the basis of financial planning is the budget. And we just covered that literally in our last episode, number 108, called Show Me the Money. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend it as Nick Figier offers some really great insights. And I thought that was one of the better episodes I've had the privilege to record. Now, writing a budget is only part of the requirement. Executing the spend is also key. And one of the dangers I think we make if we don't understand how the organizational behavior works, and of course, it can be different for every organization, is trying to husband your resources and hold on to it toward late in the fiscal year and make sure that you've got money there in case things go boom or you need something big. Well, the danger there is, is that if you get too far below a straight line expenditure, senior management might reallocate your unspent money to a more prolific spender. Now, I found that out years ago as a department head in the Navy. On my ship, I was the operations officer, so I was in charge of ops navigation, combat center, radar, signal, etc. And I had a budget for my department, just like any other department engineering, deck, supply, et cetera. Well, about halfway through the year, I'm probably only at about 20, 25% spent because I'm saving it up. I don't believe in wasting stuff. And I knew that I kept getting all these requisitions for boxes of pens. Now, back then, everything was paper. And I kind of opined that, gee whiz, if the Soviet Union had ever invented a paper-seeking missile, we'd have lost the Cold War. But nonetheless, I can remember one time saying, look, guys, just go into your lockers and look for all the pens you've got. We don't need to buy another box. Now, maybe I'm harassing my communications officer, Len said, but we came out with like 350 pens because at the end of a, a shift or a watch, what happened? You got a pen or two in your pocket, you go back to your locker, you change, and then you leave the pen there. So what does that mean? It means I'm below glide slope. I'm underspending. Well, what happened about the halfway point? The engineer, who is older than I, former enlisted guy, kind of knew the rank, knew the ropes. He was spending, well, as they say, like a drunken sailor. Of course, there's no booze on Navy ships. But in any case, the point was, is that at that mid-year review, I got a bunch of my money yanked away from me. And I said, you don't need it. He does. I said, but, but, but I've been saving my money. I've been a good steward of the money. Why wouldn't you give me more to take care of and not waste? <clears throat> Son, that's not the way it works around here. So I learned firsthand that trying to go ahead and conserve your funds doesn't work. Now, anybody who's ever worked with the federal government understands how things work at the end of the fiscal year. For about 10 or 11 months, you're comfortable saying, don't spend, don't spend, don't spend. And come the 1st of September, spend, we got to execute. 
because any money you don't spend by the 30th of September, which is the end of the federal fiscal year, is lost forever. You don't get it back the 1st of October. But wait, it gets worse. Starting the 1st of October, when you get your new budget, if you didn't spend last year's, they're going to reduce the next year budget to what you spent last time. And if you overspend, well, you're in legal trouble. So it's really an incentive to kind of come in right on the numbers. Defense contractors know that. They'll send you a big package and said, hey, buy something, whether it's buy a training course or buy a truck. There's a huge amount of stuff and sales that take place in September, and people in federal sales know that. Okay, so we're talking about being able to do the budgeting and things such as that, but also you need to be able to forecast your cash flows and your sales. Now, you don't have to worry about sales in our profession unless you're a consultant, but you certainly do need to think about cash flow. You could go bankrupt with a million dollars in receivables and no cash on hand. So you have to have money on hand. Now, typically that's done for you at a larger level in the organization, but you need to operate within that overall framework of the organization. Now, a lot of us think we're facing a recession in 2023, and we might see some reductions in spend. So as a result, you now need to start thinking about what could I do if things don't go out according to plan? Now, federal government agencies are unfortunately kind of used to this with chronic continuing resolutions. The second continuing resolution for fiscal year 23 was just signed by the president on the 16th of December. And the, I think the record was 2001, where they did 19 continuing resolutions. Now, you need to decide, are you going to be a team player and plan for future reductions? Or are you going to spend early and spend often and try to go ahead and get that money before somebody else spends it? Well, again, that's cultural and also how you want to be perceived by your peers. Another thing that comes into play when it comes to financial management is managing your vendor portfolio. Do you know when each license will renew and for how much? Do you track year over year changes and plan for that? If I came in and did a surprise inspection, could you pull up a spreadsheet or some other document and say, here's everything I've got in my inventory for cybersecurity. Here's what it costs. Here's when it renews. If not, homework assignment, go do that. Also, do you keep track of the relative importance of each of those tools? So if you did have a budget cut, you'd know what to cut first if required. You shouldn't have to be agonizing and thinking about it. You should be able to have a way to shed off those requirements. And then you get to a point where below that number, you can't function anymore. And so if your organization says, we need a 10% cutback across the board, and all the department heads and all the VPs come back and say, here it is, here it is. And you go, well, I can't afford anything. Then you know what? If that's an imperative, they'll find somebody else to take over your job who can make that 10% cut. So be prepared in advance. But you also want to have a pushback number. And that pushback number says, below a certain point, things break. And I can cut my budget 25% for security, but here's the additional risk the organization will incur. If you help management understand that, they say, hey, you want to cut the budget? Go. But now you know what's happening. They might come back and say, yeah, well, you might get a little bit more. So you need to be able to articulate the importance of your security tools relative to not other security tools as well, but other organizational expenses that are non-IT security related, because you may have to compete for a piece of a bigger budget. Another skill mentioned is marketing, sales, and customer service. Well, we want to promote products and services effectively. And that's typically what we do as a small business. But as security professionals, we need to convince management, our funding sources, and users to acquire and implement and then utilize our tools. 
Security awareness in education is, let's face it, it's part of marketing and sales. We have to convince people to change their behavior. And the hallmark of effective security awareness training is a change in behavior. In addition, we need to stand out. We need to differentiate. Now, my marketing professor, my MBA program, had said, the purpose of marketing is differentiation. And if you think about it, our users and our executives, they hear a lot of noise during the week. How do you make your security message stand out? You might think perhaps they take a message idea from spammers. They come up with headlines, things that get you interested. Have a marketing strategy. So your strategy should really be more than the schedule of monthly security awareness exercises. That's not an IT cybersecurity marketing strategy. By marketing strategy, I mean, how do we go ahead and expand our message to get it into the hands of everybody who needs it and help them use it? If your company or your organization has all hands meetings, ask to give a little presentation, maybe two or three minutes each time. I do that every other week at our all hands, one of my client sites, and that cybersecurity message is short to the point, but it's meaningful and it's interesting. People don't tune you out if you can get the message across clearly and succinctly. Short emails, don't send big, giant, long ones. If you want to get people's attention, you want them to read it, particularly busy executives, get right to the point. And if your organization holds town halls or get-togethers for people, take advantage of that. Now, security posters have always been great. And I've always loved some of the artwork and the creative ideas that come out of it. And I've had a chance to work on a couple of teams that we've actually gotten some awards for. It. That's really cool. But they haven't been as useful during the lockdown when people weren't coming in. But that's ending for most. A great resource I'd like to recommend is a company called Native Intelligence, nativeintelligence.com. It's a Native American women-owned small business. And Kay has been a friend of mine for a long, long time, brilliant artist, amazingly creative, creates fantastic stuff. And I think you'll find things there that you're not going to find pretty much anywhere else, just in terms of the creativity, the quality of the artwork, and the ability to influence people. So take a look at that and, and do something for your organization and also something for her. I think you'll find out it's a win-win situation. Another skill to master is communication and negotiation. You want to be able to interact favorably with your customers, with your employees, your suppliers, and if you have investors, both current and potential, you need to be able to understand how to communicate with them as well. Some small organizations are always on the hunt for more money. And if cybersecurity becomes a big deal based upon what's in the press, investors might want to know, are you vulnerable to this? Have you done something about this? Have you had a breach? What is our risk? We don't want our money going up in smoke because you're not protecting it effectively. So you might find yourself as part of a roadshow at some point. If you're interacting favorably, know when to speak up, but also for how long. Don't keep talking. There's a saying in sales, don't sell past the close. Once you've convinced the person of your way of thinking, quiet. Also, we've heard of KISS, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Don't get into details. And the idea of KISS and not selling past the close is once you've got somebody thinking the way you want them to, if you keep on talking, you might bring up something that, wow, I didn't think about that. That's a problem. I need to look into that. And you just blew it. Don't do that. If you get a choice, you get brought into a board meeting or a higher level thing, when you speak, be profound. Don't be redundant. Don't be an echo chamber. When you say something, people should lean over and listen because, wow, that's important. Effective verbal and written skills are hugely important, and they 
do contribute to your ability to lead and influence. And I'll offer you some details on that a little bit later. We want to maintain a consistent image across all media, whether we're presenting to email, at our all hands, at our presentations, at our posters, at our communications with our people. Remember the advice of Egon Spengler, don't cross the streams. I submit that clarity and repetition are your friends. There's a saying in the business that says, a confused customer never buys. Your security message should be compact enough to be tweetable and repeatable so that people could understand it, digest it, and know what it is. Don't confuse your people with details. Make sure that if you're trying to convince them to change your behavior or do some security action or fund some project, that they know very cleanly and crisply what you want. And that means practice your presentation. Get your intro, get your outro, make sure you have a call to action, all that stuff you can learn. Another important skill, which is no surprise, is leadership. In fact, we've done 19 episodes so far in business management and leadership. And if you check our show notes for this week, you'll find a link to that set. And I'm not going to repeat all that advice now, but I do want to point out three important CISO leadership skills. The first is to create a vision and motivate others to embrace it. There's a saying in the Bible, actually Proverbs 29:18, and King James Version says, quote, where there is no vision, the people perish. Think about it. If people don't know where they're going to go, if you have a group of people, that's how you organize them. That's how you direct them. That's how you motivate and lead. Think about some of the stuff that Elon Musk has done. Whether you like the guy or not, that's not the question I'm asking. But being able to inspire people towards some great vision to create reusable spacecraft, electric cars, the battery program, the boring company, whatever it happens to be, extend mankind, a multi-planetary species, whatever you look at it, it's that vision that motivates people to want to do that. And in my opinion, the biggest differentiator between a manager and a leader is the ability to create a vision and motivate others for, behind it. Another leadership skill, the second one I think is really, really important, is to provide mentoring, counseling, and coaching. See, leadership is no longer about personal achievement. That is to say, your personal achievement. The best leaders develop their people. And the measure of your success should be the success of your team. As a commanding officer in the military, I used to tell people that my standard of excellence is how many of my team get promoted. If you come work for me and you're well qualified, I will do the write-ups. I will put the time and energy and effort and give you an assignment to stretch your abilities and then document your success to help you with promotion. And year after year, my folks had well above average promotion rates. And the secret wasn't me. I didn't promote them. I don't get to do that. I got to sit on 12 promotion boards, but you can't push the button one person and push them over the edge. But rather by developing their, your people, by creating opportunities for them to succeed, by giving them the responsibilities, and then rewarding them with well-written documentation. The reports you write could last a long time. I had an officer who worked for me back in 2000 in five. And at the time he was thinking of getting out of the Navy, I convinced him to stay in. He was my only medical service corps officer in the leadership program. I had command of the Center for Naval Leadership. And I got a LinkedIn message from within the year, you know, just recently saying, hey, Jim Marcus, I want to say thank you. I just got promoted to rear admiral. Now here's a guy who was ready to walk out the door years ago, but I 
set him up for success. He was able to achieve it, so he gets the credit for it. But years later, he said, you're the guy who kind of turned me around. That's the difference where effective leadership, when you do mentoring and counseling and coaching, can do that. So think about your success as being valued by how well the people who would work for you do. And the third one is to manage and maintain morale and productivity. You see, not all tasks that we get are easy. That's well, that's why we get paid, right? You want to lead by example. Show that you, as the leader, are willing to pull your weight. There's a saying in the military says, don't ride in the Jeep while your troops walk. Now, there is a Jeep, and sometimes you need to ride in it, perhaps. But if you're always taking care of yourself all the time and not taking care of your people, you're missing the perks of command. Command is a responsibility. It's not a bonus. And as a result, your people will be watching you and seeing if you take advantage of that. And if you think about it, using the military as an example, soldiers will risk their lives on the battlefield, not for their country, but for their companions. And that's an important part to understand about human behavior. You want to create a sense of camaraderie. People will stick around, they'll work late, they'll work insane, crazy hours. If they feel like you're part of a team that's going off to accomplish something, and you're all working together on it, if you, the leader, are rolling up your sleeves as well, and you come in on that Saturday and instead of going out and play golf, or come in on Sunday instead of going to the football game, then what you're doing is you're creating the environment where people say, yeah, boss is someone I'm willing to follow. There's some people that you work for that you wouldn't, I've seen people that I wouldn't call them leaders. You call them bosses, right? These are folks you wouldn't even follow out of a burning building. They're there for some other reason. They get to issue orders, but they're not inspiring. I'm trying to make you an inspirational leader here. Also be careful. Look for signs of dissatisfaction. You might find an underperformer just being overwhelmed by the amount of work. And it might be okay to let that person go at some point. It could have just been a bad hire. But don't let dissatisfaction spread. If there's somebody who's grumbling and grousing or whatever, call them in. If they're a positive performer, if they've been delivering well, and all of a sudden they seem to be going over to the dark side, something might have happened in their personal life. Don't just immediately judge them and say, okay, you, boom, out. But try to go ahead and do that counseling. Do that understanding so that you get what's going on in their life. So be careful about that. But if there is dissatisfaction that's spreading, quash it. And one of the things you will be able to do is make sure that if you take action early, you don't let the rumor mill get going. And that's where a lot of problems occur. The next skill set is project management and planning. Here you have to manage resources of time, people, money, and technology. Now you can use money to buy more people, right? You hire more. I can get technology to help me get things done faster. And with more people, I can go ahead and do things. But the one thing you can't get more of is time. Time is your constrained resource. And so as a result, when you're a project manager, you need to protect your critical path, which is the linked set of deliverables and activities that one creates the next, creates the next, creates the next. And so, for example, if you do a simple thing such as, okay, I'm getting dressed in the morning. I have to put my socks on before I put on my shoes. And it really helped put on my trousers before I put on my shoes. It doesn't matter whether socks go on or trousers first, but they both have to go on before the shoes. I could put my watch on in the car 
that doesn't matter, but it better be fully dressed otherwise heading out the door. And so the idea of putting things in order and knowing what that order is and being able to communicate to that team ensures that you don't inadvertently find yourself stuck in a corner, man. Oh, I got to back up and redo all these things. Because achieving a goal may require a significant coordination of a lot of resources. Now, fortunately, there's a professional body of knowledge for that. It's called the Project Management Body of Knowledge, or PMBOK, and it offers 10 knowledge areas across five process groups of initiating, planning, executing, monitoring, and controlling, and closing. There is a certificate for that. It's called the Project Management Professional, or PMP, and there's about half a million certified people out there. So one thing you might consider for your own career, if you're going to be running projects, is to get your PMP cert. And if you are at a point in your career where you don't think you're going to be needing to do that, why don't you use that as a carrot to help motivate some of the people who work for you saying, hey, I'll get you the education and the course and also the cert so you could go ahead and add that to your resume. And that's one way you could help lead your people. Another important skill set is delegation and time management. You need to learn to let go of control and delegate. And this is sometimes hard. When you start out as a technical expert, as many of us have, you're really good at the details. And then as you move your way up through the organization, you have more and more responsibility. You can't keep doing all the details. You need to learn to let go and delegate. But, 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 but I'm the most experienced person here. That's why I got the promotion. Granted, I'll give you that. But now you have an additional job responsibility develop your people. And you don't develop your people by doing all the stuff yourself. Sure, that junior person may only be able to do it at the 85% level that you could do as a master. But if the organization isn't going to crash and burn at 85%, let the person do it. And then learn from the mistakes. The next time they'll be a 95, and they'll be a 99, and they're right up there. And what you've been able to do is do it effectively. What that also helps you is to manage your time. We all get the same 24 hours in a day. Some people manage to run large organizations. President of the United States get the same 24 hours as an unemployed person. But they do different things with it. And so find or create a system for time management. A course I used to teach many years ago, it's the officer leadership course, reserve officer leadership course. And we had our first module was called Responsibility, Accountability, and Authority. I'm going to dig all that stuff out. I may put together an episode on it. But for now, do you understand the difference of the terms? Responsibility is a requirement to complete a task, and that can be delegated. I can say, hey, I know that I've got to go ahead and take the dishes out, or take the dishes out, take the garbage out. But if I have a teenager, I can say, hey, take that out. I've kind of delegated that responsibility. But the accountability, I've got to answer for completion or non-completion. The garbage doesn't get taken out. Who gets yelled at? I do. And so it's not necessarily the person doing the work. Accountability cannot be delegated. As a CISO, you're going to be accountable for an awful lot of things. And you can't go ahead and report to an auditor or to law enforcement or your boss or the board. Well, don't blame me because one of my subordinates wasn't really smart and pushed the wrong button. Nope. You're accountable. You sign for it. And the third one, authority, is the capacity to direct people or resources. And that can be delegated as well. So you can delegate the authority and responsibility. You go there, you say you're acting on my behalf and make this thing happen. But at the end of the day, you're accountable for it. Another important skill set is problem solving. Can you make good decisions under pressure? 
Well, not to decide is to decide. And I remember, I think it was Excel 1997, the old, old stuff. It used to have a hints you could turn on tip of the day. And I don't know, I pulled over the database one time and I don't know how many there were, 50 of them or whatever. But the last one in the set, instead of being something technical, I like it said, things that go away by themselves sometimes come back by themselves. So just because you haven't made a decision on something or something goes away, doesn't mean that you've gotten off the hook. Decision making is a muscle and you should exercise it. If you have problems making decisions, what's the best way to practice a restaurant menu? Unless you have some food allergy or something that's going to cause you to collapse and into a big puffball heap and they're going to have to take you away in an ambulance, give yourself 30 seconds. Find something on the menu. Nothing's toxic. Nothing's going to kill you. And if you get something that, ah, okay, fine, it wasn't great, fine. But you made a decision. People agonize over and over again. You get good at decision-making in little things. You get good at decision-making in big things. And when we do that, we can follow Colin Powell's 40-70 rule. That 40-70 rule that he published and he said that that's what he used as the military commander and later as secretary of state is that's percent of total information available. You should have between 40 and 70% to make a decision. If you have less than 40%, you can tend to make a bad decision because you've got too many unknowns. And if you wait till you have more than 70%, you've taken too long. And sometimes that decision gets made for you. Now, how do we do it correctly without a hundred percent? Well, if you wait till hundred percent, you can be replaced by an algorithm. So you're not really doing much, but Filling in that blank sometimes comes through intuition and experience. Intuition is essentially the immediate apprehension without reasoning. Clausewitz defined that as a coup d'il, which is basically the eye for the battle for a battlefield commander who just jumps right to the, this, I see, I get it. And sometimes you have intuitive flashes and you didn't have to go through step-by-step -step reasoning. You just knew it. And that's valuable as a leader. Experience is important. It's often the result of past experience, you know, past activities. I think Tony Robbins had said success in life is a result of good judgment. Good judgment is usually a result of experience. And, well, experience is usually the result of bad judgment. So let's try to avoid the bad judgment and things like that. And the last skill that was offered there by the Australian government for startups is networking. Build good relationships. Attended seminars many years ago with Mark Victor Hansen. And Mark would say, your network is your net worth. With whom you speak, the people that you connect to, look at your LinkedIn connections, look at the other folks that you communicate with on a regular basis. That's going to be the sign of your success. So build a successful set of contacts. Now, the next reference that I looked for was from a group called the EF Academy, and they were skills to succeed. But EF Academy runs international boarding schools, and this was advice to teenagers. Now, it's like, really? Come on, I'm not a teenager. I'm a CISO, or I'm a CISO on track. But don't ignore advice targeted to this age group. You know, the joke goes, hire a teenager while they still know everything. But they're tuned observations, and I've tuned them to our working environment, so they're not just specifically out the way they came on their website. But skills, these skills are critical thinking, adaptability, excellent communication skills, cultural understanding, and initiative and drive. Some of them we heard before, a couple of them are new. Let's take a quick look. For critical thinking requires self-direction and self-discipline because it involves objective analysis and evaluation of some subject to form your judgment. Now, the foundation for critical thinking, it's an entity, enumerates the basis for critical thinking on these universal intellectual values. Clarity, 
accuracy, precision, consistency, relevance, sound evidence, good reasons, depth, breadth, and fairness. Now, I'm not going to give you a review on that, but think about it. If you're going to do critical thinking, and we say that critical thinking skills seems to be lacking in an awful lot of people. It's why spammers work well, scammers work their trolls work well. Gee whiz, even in the political world, I don't think any politician lost an election underestimating the ability of people to do critical thinking skills. But we, as humans, do develop our own habits of how we ingest and process information. It might be related to how we were brought up. If you're in an urban environment, you might be a little bit less trusting than a rural environment based upon your childhood. But it's difficult to change our conditioning. So if you tend to be too trusting or tend to be too suspicious, at any extreme, that could be dangerous. You need to build your intuition to understand from a critical thinking perspective, what should you accept and what should you drill down on to make sure that it's really true. From adaptability, adaptability means what? Rapid adjustment to change or new circumstances. And Yale University offers some examples of adaptability. A new manager or coworker with different workplace ideas. Hmm, how do you settle that out? Or you add or change responsibilities. What happens in some organizations, for example, as a naval officer, we would promote based upon someone being fully qualified for the next pay grade rather than just having the potential. So you had to demonstrate and then document, which would be your boss documenting it. Remember I said how important it was to write these things down, that you were fully qualified at the next level. And that way we avoided the Peter principle in general because most people wouldn't promote and go, oh, now what do I do? They had already been doing it. Third thing that Yale identified was a shift in work priorities based upon changing business requirements. Let's see what happens in 2023. You might have new priorities based upon that. Changing environmental conditions. COVID work from home was a changing environmental condition. And from a security perspective, that created an awful lot of rapid challenges for us to be able to protect everything that was widespread. Also managing and monitoring the workloads of your people to maintain productivity. Somebody working at home in their bunny slippers could still get a lot of work done, but you need to create a success environment for them. You might want to change communication requirements. That's another adaptable requirement because the work from home said that we had to do virtual communications. And also if companies had to reduce travel expenses and the COVID lockdown, that may impact future interactions because you're saying, hey, we like the savings. We don't like flying you cross country to go meet with somebody. Just go ahead and get on a Zoom call. And so that's going to change your communications requirements. The last one that you have for an adaptability challenge, this is listed by Yale, increase the efficiency of your work processes. You might change your tools, your methodologies, your reporting relationships. But notice that the common term for a lot of these adaptability items were change. And the recommended strategies to champion change are to be responsive to new information, be open to consider new roles and responsibilities. As an individual, you should set stretch goals to improve your skill set. Go after something you don't know how to do and set yourself as a way to go ahead and learn that. It's a constant requirement to be learning. Remember GMARC's law, half of what you know about cybersecurity will be obsolete in 18 months. Commit to personal development. One way to do that is listen to your CISO Tradecraft podcast every week without fail. There we go. And then also be realistic. Remember the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It's important not to go tilting off at windmills. Don't waste your time and energy and effort trying to do things that can't get done. And then stay current in your industry. Don't be 
blindsided with management asks about some event or product related to cybersecurity, some news release hits, get out early, get ahead of it. If something you get in your news feeds on Sunday night, and you know it's going to be on the news Monday morning on the Today Show, Monday evening, get a message out to your executive saying, hey, this is happening. We are not or are vulnerable to it. Here's what we're doing about it. And then when it hits the press, your executive team says, hey, I've always informed about that. I feel good about it. Another skill is excellent communication skills. I mean, reading, writing, and arithmetic are still important. I mean, we've got calculators to help us with arithmetic, and we've got spell checkers to help us with writing, and, and now there's grammar checkers, and, uh, and there's even generative AI tools like a chat GPD. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But chat, SMS, emojis have really changed our vocabulary and our syntax, and there may be a generational expectation. I remember when I had called my son a while ago, he said, Dad, don't call me. That's rude. So what do you mean calling you is rude? I'm your dad. He says, text me so I can get back to you when it's convenient for me. Okay. Well, in any case, we've worked that out. But the idea is, is that there's a different expectation. Make sure you remember or learn, if you haven't had it, the experience, proper writing style and grammar. It's not necessarily that you use the Oxford comma, by the way, I do. But there are a lot of tools that are out there, but they're only going to help you so much if you can't organize your thinking effectively. And adapt your writing style to your target audience. Busy executives need short, actionable communications. Learn the term bluff, B-L-U-F, bottom line up front. Don't write mystery novels into your messaging. Go ahead and get right to the point. And if you do that, your emails will get read. Also be culturally sensitive. See, our workplace is probably the most diverse in history, particularly in Gen Z. And a lot of triggers that are out there could be race, like, for example, anti-Asian behavior during early covid uh, gender, anti-LGBT, uh, anti-Semitism, religion. I mean, someone will always find a way to be offended. Don't take it personally. What you want to do is you want to ensure that you respect other people. Don't place demands on them and really don't accept demands from them on you. But if you go ahead and show mutual respect, I think you go a long way. See, culture is also more than interpersonal. There's also corporate cultures. You need to pick up on these things quickly if you're new there. Which comes first, revenue? family. How about honesty and integrity in everything we do? Is that important? Is it profit uber alles? What is it that really drives that organization and what is rewarded? And as a leader, you get to help set the culture, especially in a new organization. So take a little bit of time and think about what you want to have for that initial statement to create that culture. Then lastly, the idea of initiative and drive. Business success, it's not the same as academic success. Remember, this was targeted for for students, for teenagers, but think about it. You might've done extraordinarily well in an academic environment and not so well in the real world. And that also happens in the military. Somebody could be on paper a fantastically successful person and doesn't do well in combat or in battle. Then you look at someone like you know, late Senator John McCain. He graduated in the bottom 5% of his class. I mean, he just barely got up, but he was a guy hopping the fence at night and doing all kinds of other stuff that he probably shouldn't. But he wasn't in the job of pleasing his professors. He was out doing his own thing. And when he was captured and held as a prisoner of war for years, well, he was able to go ahead and withstand that pressure because he was pretty much point of being his own person. And this initiative and drive, it can be applied externally. Think of like a boot camp where everything is being ordered and you do this and you do that. But success ultimately is dependent not upon having somebody create demands on you 
all the time, but internalizing that sense of initiative. And as I tell people, if you can't get excited about your job, well, maybe you're in the wrong line of work. I mean, cybersecurity careers require constant learning. And money's great. It's good for those who are competent, but it can be great for those who can make things happen. Okay, I promise you I'd have a special guest. And special guest is ChatGBT. So let me say that again, ChatGPT. We've got to find a way to pronounce that. And we'll come up maybe with a little bit better pronounceable acronym. But it's been a sensation since it was released by OpenAI in November 2022. And it's currently free to use during the research preview. Might not always be that way. It's got a companion called Dolly 2. See, that I can pronounce. D-A-L-L hyphen E. Too. It's pretty cool. It can create images based on natural language descriptions. But as you look at the chat GPT, as information is generated and feedback is applied, this model can be expected to get much better over time. Now, I kind of wonder what Ray Kurzweil would say about the timing of the singularity, which is when the ability of a computer overtakes the abilities of a human brain. He initially predicted about 2045, but some of us think he might get there a little bit earlier. Now, my first experience with AI was ELISA. It was a natural language processing program created in the 1960s by Joseph Weizenbaum at MIT, the Artificial Intelligence Labs, and it was a psychotherapist chatbot. And I can remember several students in my high school being convinced they were talking to a real counselor about their teenage problems. And our chatbots have come a long way since then. Now, what I did is I created a chat GPT account. Right now, you can do so for free. And I asked the question, what are the essential business skills for a cybersecurity professional? And here's what I got. There are several essential business skills that are important for a cybersecurity professional to possess. One, technical expertise. It is important for a cybersecurity professional to have a strong understanding of computer systems and networks, as well as the ability to analyze and troubleshoot technical issues. Two, Communication skills. Cybersecurity professionals need to be able to clearly explain complex technical concepts to non-technical stakeholders such as executives and clients. Three, risk management. Cybersecurity professionals need to be able to identify and assess risks to an organization's systems and data and develop strategies to mitigate those risks. Four, project management. Cybersecurity professionals may be responsible for managing projects related to the implementation of security measures, so it is important to have strong project management skills. Five, problem solving. Cybersecurity professionals need to be able to identify and solve problems quickly and effectively in order to protect an organization's systems and data. Six, attention to detail. Cybersecurity professionals need to be detail-oriented in order to identify and address potential vulnerabilities and threats. And seven, adaptability. The field of cybersecurity is constantly evolving, so it is important for cybersecurity professionals to be able to adapt and learn new technologies and techniques as needed. Now, do some of those items sound familiar? The AI tools need something to train on, and if you use the internet as a source for input, you'll start to see familiar material. Now, this creates an interesting opportunity and a challenge. With the amount of misinformation and disinformation available, how do you keep your AI system from ingesting that when reflecting it back to the human? And there is a precedent, because in the 1980s, when many databases were computerized or, or new fields were added, for example, the time when I was living in California, they said, hey, we need to add a social security number to your license. Please send us the, your social security number. There is no validation, no check, but whatever was given went in there, and that became official. I was G. Mark Hardy 
in the military on my ID card. I remember when I promoted to lieutenant many years ago, I just got off the midwatch and I always put down my first name, middle initial. I said, put down G mark. That's an order. And the little buddy, I said, I'm sorry, sir. Yes. Well, every time I had to get a new ID card, they said, we have to put what was on the ID card before. So I'm one of the few people who ever had a first initial middle name and I kept that all the way to retirement. So we've looked into the question of CISO skill sets. We've consulted several non-obvious sources. We look at the Australian government's advice to entrepreneurs, boarding school advice to teenagers, and even artificial intelligence. And you might take issue with some of those items, and that's okay, because only you can decide what you're going to incorporate into your personal leadership toolbox. But I wanted to help expand your thinking a bit, because, well, sometimes the best answer is outside the box. So let me leave you with some concluding thoughts. Be a leader, manage money and resources, differentiate yourself and your message, communicate with clarity and emphasis, delegate and hold subordinates accountable, build a personal network, mentor your team, be adaptable, be sensitive to cultural and political issues, watch the details and ensure your management makes informed risk-based decisions and know your limitations. Thank you for listening. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy for CISO Tradecraft. If you've enjoyed our show, we ask you to please give us a like. If you're platform following us, share it with other people so they know where you're getting your stuff. Our show is going to take off next week for Christmas. So please spend the time you would have spent listening to our podcast with people who are important to you. The world will keep your work waiting for you. Until then, stay safe.